Uh, good afternoon. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to introduce today's guest speaker, Bill Emmett, who, as I'm sure uh, most of you will know, is a former editor of The Economist. Uh, he's an author of many books about different topics and parts of the world. Uh, has a great interest in Italy, in uh, Japan as a former Tokyo correspondent, in China. Um, but in particular, relevance to today's theme is uh, he's agreed I can use the term a Europhile. Um, and of course, as some of you who saw the film last week will know, he's a, a presenter of uh, a couple of documentaries, one about Italy and uh, the great European disaster movie which was screened last week about uh, the European project. And uh, so his theme today is going to be about the challenges of reporting Europe. Thank you very much, Richard, and thank you all for being here. I'm delighted to be, you won't know this, but back at, the, at this Wednesday seminar of the Reuters Institute. And I've uh, been here before talking previously about Italy, about Silvio Berlusconi. So there'll be fewer jokes about sex uh, today <laughs> and uh, more um, serious commentary about um, the challenges of reporting Europe. This is, as Richard said, a follow-up in a way, to uh, the screening that some of you were at of um, our film, The Great European Disaster Movie, which I do have further copies since, thanks to technical problems, you didn't see the end of it um, <laughs> because of the problems with the DVD machine. So it's a follow-up to that because I want to use that <coughs> experience of making that film uh, as um, a sort of test case or a, a worked <coughs> example of some of the difficulties of uh, reporting about Europe, both in general, i.e. reporting about Europe, just getting the story right, and secondly, about reporting about Europe in Britain. So I'm going to tell the story of the documentary. I'm going to explore, in connection with it, the particular British issues with um, the subject of Europe, uh, and um, the, particularly amid the Brexit referendum, but also try to explain the broader difficulties um, and uh, inadequacies um, of reporting of uh, this continent uh, within which we live. Uh, and finally, say why I actually see those difficulties as a journalist as an opportunity rather than um, uh, some sort of uh, permanent and, uh, and uh, ineluctable problem. Let me sort of start in the middle, really, of that list, because I'll finish with the documentary. Um, why, um, what is the general problem of reporting on Europe? Why is this not part of a Reuters Institute Wednesday series on the challenge of reporting Europe, the challenge of reporting Asia, the challenge of reporting Latin America, the challenge of reporting Africa? Why, is you, why have we singled out Europe as being more difficult um, than um, another region. Well, you may disagree. You may think that it isn't more difficult, but there are some particularities. One is that uh, you do have um, uh, an intertangling of the national, which, of course, is the center of all our news agendas, and the regional. Uh, and the regional has become ever more important, but ever harder to... Um, understand and make interesting for our, our readerships and viewerships. Why? Well, because I think the um, very essence of the European Union has been, in a way, to try to destroy news. In other words, um, it is a structure through which the natural inter-country um, sources of news, namely tensions over trade, politics, people, call it money, whatever it, whatever it is, are um, suppressed through an essentially boring set of processes. 
as I said, you could almost define the European Union as an attempt to destroy news in Europe by reducing conflict, which is, of course, um, the essence of uh, much news journalism. Third, you have, I think, a broader tension um, between uh, the need and desire to report on these processes and these institutions, which we call Europe, the European Union, and the need to understand what's going on in the territory that we call Europe. Uh, and as anyone who is familiar with um, Brussels and the institutions in Brussels knows, um, there is a distinct difference between what is important in the institutions and what is actually going on in the territory. And it is, I think it's for successive generations of uh, journalists, it's been hard to connect the two. You can be very good at the institutions, or you can be, so generally there are fewer people who are good on the territory, um, really being able to um, understand uh, what's going on in France and in Germany and in, uh, and in the Netherlands and in Britain and connect them together. But certainly it's very rare for them to be the same person. So you've got this problem of the overlay. And then finally, in commercial terms, the difficulty of Europe has been uh, that the absence of any large pan-European advertising market um, I know this from my time at The Economist, where we were one of the more successful uh, publications in uh, serving a pan-European advertising market, but that the number of companies or other advertisers that wish to reach um, cross-border audiences is very few. And that then has made it impossible or very difficult for pan-European news organizations to develop in uh, an, era, er, uh, an era of the news media in which advertising dominated the revenue streams, the lack of a pan-European revenue stream for all but, as I say, the sort of um, very small um, elite set of publications has, I think, shaped um, the failures, successive failures of efforts to uh, put together uh, cross-border publications in whatever language, um, but they've been principally been in English. Why uh, is there a lack of a pan-European advertising market? Well, because um, products, despite the single market, um, are essentially marketed in national ways. The um, single market may make it possible to sell the same product in many countries according to the same regulations, but the consumer's decisions, which are what advertisers seek to influence, um, are rooted in national cultures. And so that car makers even if they're selling essentially the same car in 8, 10, 15, 28 European Union countries, uh, wish to um, advertise in very national ways. Uh, and um, the national media is always uh, more competitive in terms of, in terms of the number of, uh, of readers of the appropriate demographic than a pan-European publication. So The Economist did well on... Um, <coughs> In my day, around 250 to 300,000 uh, readers uh, across um, were European Union outside Britain. At Britain, you get to up to about 400,000. That's a pretty good number, um, but um, actually wasn't competitive in getting top-level, substantial um, advertising in very many of those places because you only had 40,000 
French, French readers or 30,000 German readers and so on, whereas the local publications had many more. It's a basic point, but it is, I think, an important element of why there hasn't been any successful um, pan-European publication, but also, I think, a question then that we might speculate about the future with, since the era, as you know better than I do, of advertising-led media businesses <coughs> is going out, and subscription-led media businesses are coming in, um, insofar as they can, might there be a possibility in the new media uh, age of building a subscription-led European publication is a question that we might wish to discuss, and whether then, if that was possible, um, that um, then you might start to produce some um, new evolution in the way in which news was thought about. So let me then move on to explain my personal evolution in uh, coverage of the European Union and of Europe, um, just so that you know where I'm coming from. Uh, my first job um, in journalism, when, uh, when I was hot out of um, Nuffield College, where together with David Levy, I was a PhD student in, or DPhil student in uh, a topic in French politics, um, and um, a job offer in in Brussels for The Economist came up uh, that was the long, uh, a long delayed result of an application I'd made two years earlier. So unlike Dr. Levy, um, I uh, threw, out, <laughs> threw away my, my DPhil and went to, um, to work in Brussels. So that was my first job, um, covering the European community, uh, then of nine countries. Um, and I have to say, it was a great place to start as a journalist. Uh, why? Because uh, information was uh, easy to get, abundant, flowing down the streets. Everybody was felt so beleaguered that they were desperate to talk to you. Um, <laughs> and uh, indeed, even with only nine countries, let alone today's 28, um, everyone was desperate to speak to you in order to do down the other eight. So that, um, therefore, it was very easy to be a journalist. There were a great array of topics. Uh, which also meant that it was a good place to, not, uh, not in my case, but a good place to be a freelance because there were a lot of different uh, areas that people wanted strings for. But he, already then, there was clearly a problem of uh, this interplay of process versus the substance. In other words, that, that uh, the story in Brussels is about um, processes, trends, efforts to achieve consensus and common policies about X, Y, or Z, rather than uh, news events, um, and that political tensions uh, typically were they played down rather than played up. It actually, already I could see then that the easier part of the job of reporting on Europe was economics, because economics is more led by data less led by events, more led by trends and themes and, uh, and um, even structures. Uh, and even then, I could, in those few years when I was in Brussels in the early 1980s, the most satisfying pan-European stories were about the European economy uh, and about then the fledgling European monetary system. The Economist, what is its evolution? Well, uh, you may well know, but in the early 1970s, uh, The Economist, um, when Britain joined the European Union, 
uh, Europe, then European Community um, launched a separate section of the magazine about called European Community with quite a number of pages. I was appointed as Brussels correspondent in 1980 thanks to a dispute on the staff about whether to scrap this section um, and uh, it was decided instead to scale it down and hire someone cheap instead um, uh, as the number two in a two-man office and that was me. Um, so the coverage shrank and it was but it was still a separate subsection and then later in that decade that section was abolished and absorbed into the uh, Europe section, but made, um, but obviously Europe section kept separate from Britain in the way Britain thinks of itself um, as separate from Europe. And then the next major innovation, um, whose date I forget, I'll take credit for it, but I'm not sure it was in my time, was when The Economist launched uh, a column on Europe, the Charlemagne column. And that's worth mentioning because it did represent an effort to try to um, produce a weekly column that took a pan-European view and not an institutional view, that it tried to separate, it was, its explicit goal was to try to separate um, the narrative and the analysis about Europe from the bubble of Brussels and from the institutional processes of Brussels, but rather to then connect those processes with trends in the territory of Europe, trends in the member countries. Um, it took some years before it really reached the right tone of voice. Initially, it spoiled its efforts. Uh, we spoiled its efforts by um, deciding that it should be written by different authors each week, depending on the topic. Um, perhaps um, someone in Paris should write it if there was a an idea, pan-European idea that began with, uh, with French politics or, or in Berlin, uh, but that made it actually incoherent. Um, so we resolved upon a single author, which is where it is now, um, and that single author has, I think, in recent years, much more successfully uh, tried to um, give it a single tone of voice, but in particular <coughs> to crucially, I think, to, uh, connect together um, actual social, political and economic trends um, in the territory of Europe with um, the Brussels processes that are happening and trying, indeed, I would suggest, to make those Brussels processes seem the less important part of the story rather <coughs> than the principal part. So what about the European, the crises over the last um, five years, which led to this film, The Great European Disaster Movie, and which the Reuters Institute have done a number of um, excellent uh, studies on, the, on the media coverage of those crises. Those ought to have made Europe easy to report. The um, problem of process versus substance that I talked about that made it difficult to convince uh, editors in, in, in uh, London or in other capital that fish were really the uh, most important subject um, because there was a group of fishing ministers meeting. Um, that ought to have gone away because Europe suddenly, unfortunately, was making the news with the Euro crisis, with um, Ukraine and the crisis on Europe's borders, with, of course, the migrant and refugee crisis, um, which, even better, is full of human stories, uh, and now the terrorism crisis. Is it still hard to report? Well, I think 
It has proved harder to report, but I think probably these crises have, to some degree, played into um, the hands of better analysis and better reporting. But still, um, a reasonable overall conclusion would be that, um, essentially, uh, in my reading of it and viewing of it, the coverage is national plus rather than European focused on national, and that there hasn't been typically um, a very successful effort to um, do comparative reporting. Uh, the Euro crisis ought to have been the most um, fruitful for, uh, for that. But what's been difficult about the Euro, Euro crisis, I think, has been that it, precisely that it is in economics. Um, and, and most of the people who are, were on the front line in Brussels and elsewhere are not economic specialists, but rather are generalists. And very often the economic specialists that then get moved in are national economic specialists and not uh, used to uh, looking on, on a pan-European scale, unless they're in elite publications. And secondly, I think um, the, uh, the strong national narratives that took over in the Euro crisis um, of, uh, between creditors and debtors, of um, uh, laziness versus uh, um, prudence uh, and so forth, um, were naturally very attractive um, to uh, the media, and I think that, that those national narratives tended then to, to pull the coverage away from like, the underlying analysis that might have been there. And all throughout, um, particularly in the British media, um, the journalists have found, it, have found that the, their narratives about the Euro crisis has become overlain with um, question of whether they were for or against the euro uh, and its continued survival, rather than being able to detach themselves from uh, the, uh, the, 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 the politics of the euro and the, and the desirability of it, and focus uh, instead on analysis. I think that the other crises, the migrant crisis, the Ukraine crisis, and uh, now the terrorism crisis, are better for um, producing genuinely pan-European um, analysis because um, they are more clearly shared um, crises in which uh, more clearly uh, every story has ingredients from several countries and, uh, and, and, um, uh, and the, the necessity of, of, of national authorities to co collaborate has been more central to the story. And yet, I think that um, actually much of the coverage has been um, national in nature, national in focus, rather than um, finding uh, common agendas. So that really is where the making of this film, the great European disaster movie, came in. Um, why did we make the film? Well, essentially because the BBC had shown a previous film that the director and I had made on Italy, and the person who acquired that film, Nick Fraser, who was at the screening um, on uh, Thursday, um, and who is half French, um, so perhaps there's an element of personal interest and bias there, um, said to us afterwards, you know, I've always wanted to have a, a documentary about what's happening in Europe, 
Now it seems more than ever we should have on the BBC a documentary about what's happening in Europe. Um, maybe an Italian director and a British journalist is the right combination to do it. Would you make it for us? Um, so we said, uh, absolutely, um, give us the money, um, which, of course, the way in which broadcasting and television and documentaries go, he couldn't, <laughs> but he gave us a bit of the money and helped us to, to raise the rest of the money. Uh, so that was the genesis of it was a, a demand from the BBC for um, a picture of uh, what was going on in the continent as a whole, including Britain, a picture of, of uh, or an explanation of why Europe seemed to be heading towards crises um, with the euro crisis, with rising nationalism in different countries, um, beginning to come through the migrant crisis and the questions of what was happening south of the Mediterranean. Uh, but that was uh, a bit later. And one that wasn't, as Nick saw it, and as we, of course, didn't see it, wasn't a British view of Europe, but rather was a, a view that had um, pan-national um, characteristics, shall we say, with an Italian director. What was the experience of making the film? Well, um, Richard and David will... Um, uh, know much more about all the details of this of the BBC's um, way of uh, processing than, than I do, um, but basically what we saw with the uh, this film was um, a sort of test case of the siloed nature of a big bureaucracy like the BBC. Um, I learned that decision making was going to take place at at least four different levels, and possibly I didn't even know of the other ten where the decisions had to be taking place. So we were commissioned by Storyville Strand, which Nick Fraser runs, so they were the ones who uh, put up the development money and uh, you know, uh, undertook to be the editors. We then had conversations with News and Current Affairs, um, James Harding and his team at News and Current Affairs, um, who Nick introduced us to and that, and that we contacted, thinking that um, actually they would be very keen on such a film. Um, they decided that um, they didn't want to touch it with a barge pole. Uh, why? Well, one, because they were very British-oriented and sensitised to the British politics of the story of Europe, but secondly, because they took the view that um, if they were to commission a pro-European film about the crisis of Europe, which is what we said it was going to be, they would have to spend an equal amount of money on an anti-European film about the crisis of Europe. Uh, and therefore, the cost of saying yes was to them going to be double. So they said no, so we stayed with Storyville. Then we had made the film um, by um, the late autumn of uh, last year, of 2014, by about now. And then we found another set of decision-making um, barriers in the controller of BBC4 and the schedulers of BBC4 about whether to let the film go ahead. And of course, advised by uh, the editorial policy committee, is that what it's called? The oh, policy board, anyway, whatever it's called. <laughs> the editorial policy committee of the um, of the um, of the BBC. So unex un uh, unexpected by naive non-broadcast person like me, um, this film that the BBC had asked for wasn't actually definitely going to be broadcast. 
um, because I had, it had to go through these other hoops, which weren't just editing hoops, they were yes or no um, hoops, even at that late stage when the BBC had spent quite a lot of money on it. So the result of this in um, December 2014 and January 2015 was sort of a bit of a car crash, really. Um, first of all, the car crash um, over the portrayal of the film as an authored film. The BBC's editorial guidelines, as indeed with the Broadcasting Code, um, Ofcom, as I understand it, um, give a sort of dispensation for, uh, for opinion as long as the film is clearly authored. Um, and we thought that um, a film being having the words a film by Annalisa Pires and so forth on it would mean that that was clear author. But they, it was decided that this had to be underlined even more um, by filming a short um, uh, sequence with me and Annalisa um, saying essentially, yes, this is our film. Um, I almost don't exaggerate um, in order to show that then there was a problem because, uh, which perhaps was more an understandable problem which was that Annalisa and I have set up a foundation uh, which, full disclosure Richard Sandbrook is a trustee um, to use films for educational purposes after their first uh, transmission um, and uh, to perform public and uh, schools education uh, in other ways. Uh, and the website of the foundation used the word campaign. And campaign, I learned, is a, um, is a, a very dangerous word in the BBC. Um, and so we lost a few weeks while, um, it, while we had to edit out all references to campaigns because it couldn't be a campaigning film because it might be interpreted as a political campaign. Um, then, uh, there was the question of um, like balance within the film, uh, which again is a very understandable question, that um, with a film like this, obviously we got <coughs> interviews of people from UKIP, we got interviews of, of uh, pro and anti-Euro um, people and so forth, but the question was, all in the editing were, that was finally brought on by the editorial board was, were we being fair enough in the film? Uh, to me, um, I thought we had to be fair and do be due process, but part of the point of an authored film was that the ability to be unfair, in a sense, um, or the ability to have, have a, a, a strong analytical point of view. Then um, the big issue with a film like this is um, balance, i.e. impartiality, under the, uh, the uh, editorial guidelines and indeed the, the, um, the, the statutory structure of the BBC and of other broadcasters, how to preserve impartiality with a film that clearly had a very strong point of view about um, the European Union, both about where it's going um, and about um, whether it was worth saving. And the problem for that was that um, it needed to be balanced in the context of other coverage. And yet, because it had been, been pushed away by news and current affairs and put only in Storyville, there was no other coverage that it could be connected to, so that the, the silo, the very decision by News and Current Affairs to sort of push it into a corner of the BBC, then meant that it wasn't planned as part of a sequence of, uh, of, uh, uh, of other um, coverage. And since we were moving towards a British general election campaign, this became obviously more important. Uh, and um, 
as luck would have it, um, the schedules happened to have a film called Meet the U-Kippers, um, a sort of observational documentary about UKIP that was going out um, almost at the same time, as if two sides hadn't known about each other. Suddenly, they were scheduled together, um, and these were so these were two anti-UKIP films essentially all together. So that produced a further delay in the in the scheduling. Um, and then finally, um, the decision was made that to create impartiality and create balance by um, shortening the film to make space for a special Newsnight debate um, to run after the film, chaired by uh, Robert Peston, and essentially putting me into the boxing ring with um, a UKIP MP, then Mark Reckless, um, and uh, Peter Hitchens from the Daily Mail, so that they could um, tell me how terrible the film was. Um, so, I'm going through this in detail only to say that, that uh, what um, I hope you all aware that um, the convoluted way in which these things are conceived um, is surprising to me, but also the difficulty, particularly with a long-term project like a documentary, where um, it's expensive, it takes a long time, but then suddenly, right at the end of the process, the decision-making about how it's going to be shown and when happens in fast motion, but with a, a sort of, with a, as I say, with a kind of a car crash. And then, when the film was broadcast on March the 1st of this year, um, it fell straight into the, um, the sort of Eurosceptic um, boiling uh, cauldron of British politics. Um, as I think I said the other night, those who, who, those who are here will remember that, as the film was coming to its end, and we had decided on this title, The Great European Disaster Movie, which actually was Nick's very good proposal, um, I got worried that actually the Eurosceptics might like the film because of the, what, the old saw that it's the headline that makes the difference and not the, not the story, and that Europe is a great disaster would be something that they would like. Um, actually, of course, they didn't. And we got um, uh, an onslaught of, uh, of, of uh, derision from the Eurosceptics, uh, criticism that the film was essentially propaganda, uh, and um, uh, an assault by um, various uh, parts of the sort of Eurosceptic movement, partly in the Daily Telegraph, very strongly in the Daily Mail, um, and, um, and then by all sorts of trolls. Uh, that then ultimately started to focus on the fact that the film had received some money from the European Union Media Fund um, as part of, its, uh, part of its budget. So that the legitimacy of a report about the nature of uh, what was going on in Europe <coughs> came undermined by the fact that 10% of its budget had come from a fund administered by the European Union, with no editorial controls attached, but nevertheless um, labelable as being um, EU financing of, of uh, propaganda. Now, the difficulty of, of this is, you might say, well, that's obvious, you should have avoided taking EU media fund, and perhaps we should have avoided taking EU media fund, but you can't get the money otherwise enough. And secondly, this fund gives money to everybody, to all sorts of things. Um, and doesn't appear to be politically uh, sensitive. And we were, in fact, getting a bit more money from Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, since a film like this is eligible for um, 
so-called tax credit, i.e. a subsidy, um, from uh, HMRC if it's, uh, or insofar as its production <coughs> costs are spent in Britain. Uh, and in fact, the subsidy from the British government, therefore, through the HMRC, was larger than the subsidy from the European Union. So um, how do you balance those off against each other um, in the politics? So that's the story of the, of the great European disaster movie. Um, why do I stress that? Well, because of the, one, because it was an effort to try to um, portray Europe in a non-national way, so a cross-border, cross-cultural way, seeing the stories of Europe about dealing with immigration, reforming welfare, uh, dealing with aging populations, facing up to the Euro crisis, um, the values of equal rights and democracy as being a shared agenda where experiences in Sweden and in Spain and in Britain and in uh, Germany and in other countries had something to teach each other. So it was an effort to do what I'm saying is, is, is difficult to do and it's rare that it's done. Secondly, because uh, I think it illustrates what's going to happen repeatedly during the next um, year or 18 months during the referendum campaign, which is um, of great difficulty in the media in this country, where you all happen to be living at the time, um, of, uh, be, of balancing impartiality and analysis on the issue of Europe. This film was about the troubles of Europe, I would say more than about being, being um, pro-European, but um, its right to speak was challenged um, by those who only were interested in whether you were pro-European or anti-European. So during the Britney referendum campaign, the problem, especially for broadcasters, of how to meet the requirements of impartiality um, is going to be very great. And I think in the debate in this country, there is um, a, a big problem that um, particularly on the Eurosceptic side, but it may well happen on the, on the Europhile side as well, that one of the tactics, rather as in all sorts of um, militant um, actions of the past, has been to, will be to try to remove the right to speak, as it were, to delegitimize voices, particularly in the media, and to intimidate, uh, to challenge people's credentials and therefore to try to shut them up, just as um, the Vote Leave campaign has been um, trying to lobby, trying to shut up the CBI um, and uh, has uh, started to lobby companies to uh, not take, start not take positions. So there will be an attempt to, to, um, to silence. So that we are, I think, going to face a difficult period of, in the media in this country in um, achieving um, uh, good information, free information, above all in the broadcaster's impartial information um, in an atmosphere of uh, high politics and high degrees of intimidation. But the second conclusion, separate from that um, and from the British story, is that I think that, um, and I'd like to leave this for the discussion, that actually the troubles of reporting on this, inter this mixture of um, institutions and territory of countries which share so many problems, 
of countries that have so much to tell each other um, is actually an opportunity for um, good journalists and for um, journalists who wish to make a mark. It's hard to get heard, but when you are heard, what you're doing is, I think, then distinctive and potentially of higher value to the reader. In my prejudice, that in this uh, new age of the media, that um, we as journalists need to uh, be clear what value we're adding for the reader, for the viewer. Um, often it will be me measured by what the viewer and the reader are willing to pay for our journalism. And my belief is that the opportunity of providing comparative analysis across country, um, drawing parallels and lessons that cast, cast light on your national, um, national topics um, will be a powerful way, or one powerful way of providing that value added that enables us to be paid. Perhaps I'm just describing the mission of The Economist, but there we are. I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much.